Hello everyone, my name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at Common Ground, along with an amazing eldership team and my wife, Laura. We give leadership to Ronnebosch PM, which meets in the evening in, in our Bosch campus. Some of you will know me from preaching in your context, and, but many and probably most of you won't know me. So a little bit about myself. As I said, I'm married to Laura. She's a high school math teacher at Sachs. She's in the full swing of trying to do online teaching and continue to teach people while we go through what we go through. These are really unusual times and, and certain times and we're all having to adapt and do things differently to how we would normally do them. We've had some highs in our home and some lows in our home. The, the low moments are basically for our two-year-old daughter is uh, she thinks we're playing a big game of prison break. So every time I open a door, slide open a door, she runs to the gate and starts shaking it. The other day I found her in tears wailing with her pram, pushing it up against the gate, desperate to go for a walk to the park. Those are the low moments because I just come across as the big mean guy who won't open the gate because, and she's just desperate to go. And we can't explain to her why we can't do it. But we've also had some amazing moments during the this unprecedented and strange time as a family where we've, we've been able to just spend a lot of time together, get healthy rhythms in place and just enjoy each other's company. I know we're all in different situations and this, this time is a really strange time for us. And to be doing Easter in this time is even more strange. But I actually think it's quite a grace of God that Easter falls during this time of lockdown. It's a time where we get to reflect on the, the cross of Jesus, a, a, a strange place to go and, and look for hope. But as we reflect on that this morning, that is my prayer, is that as we look at the cross of Jesus, we would experience great hope, courage, and faith rising up for us in these shaky times. It's an ama amazing moment to reflect on. It's a moment that happened over 2,000 years ago, but yet it has spoken through history to individuals and shaped nations and and, and it stood through the test of time and it stood through the test of the most shaky times. Not just individual people experiencing shaky times, but all the shaking times of the world in the last 2,000 years. The cross of Christ has spoken loudly and stood forth as a source of hope. So my prayer as we, we dive into this and reflect on this this morning and celebrate the unlikely victory of the cross, that we would experience great courage rise up in us that we would experience a sense of stability coming over our souls and that we would find ourselves being a people of deep courage. And if you're here looking in and you're not sure about these claims of the cross, my, my prayer for you is that you would encounter the living God in this moment as we reflect upon his cross. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then Kinsani's going to read for us and we're going to get started. Father, we love you. We need you, we, we trust you, and we rest in you. And we pray that as we gather today on Easter Friday and reflect on the reality of your cross and all the wonderful implications and all the real implications it has for our lives, that we would encounter you, the one who hung on that cross. Father, would you speak loudly? Would you speak clearly? Would you pour out your presence and your spirit? Would you change and transform us? God, would you meet us where we're at? And would we encounter you freshly? We love you, we trust you, and we rest in you, Jesus. Amen. We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 until 31. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What I want to do now is I just want to give us a bit of context to that piece of scripture that we've just read. And what has happened is Paul is writing this letter to a church in Corinth where they've become a bit unhinged in terms of understanding of what it means to be Christ followers. And now what they've done is they've started to follow people and speakers and preachers and leaders and go, I follow this person, I follow this person, I follow that person. And into that it's, called, it's caused relational strife, it's caused disunity, it's caused chaos. And Paul, writing this letter to the church, wants to bring a sense of stability. He wants to anchor them in something that is true and real and meaningful and bring them back to what really matters most. And that's the, the piece of scripture that we've just read is, is Paul trying to do that. And what he does in this, in this moment of relational mess and confusion is he says, I'm going to speak to you an anchoring message. I'm going to bring something to you that is central to the Christian faith. I'm going to remind you of what, what it means to be a Christian and what, what sits at the center of that. I'm going to speak of something that obliterates pride and fear. I'm going to speak of something that comes with power. I'm going to speak of something that will change the way that you seek wisdom, the way that you seek each other, and the way that you conduct your lives in this time. And that message is the message of the cross. And so as we unpack the message of the cross, as we unpack Paul's words, as he tries to send this anchoring message to this church, we're going to look at the unexpected strength of the cross. We're going to look at the unexpected wisdom of the cross. And we're going to look at the unexpected boast of the cross. Let's start with that first one. The unexpected strength of the cross. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. 
You see, what Paul, Paul is doing is he's saying, uh, it's really not about the speaker. It's really not about the leader. Stop focusing on those things. I want you to refocus and remember at the center of your faith was a message. And at the center of that message was a cross. And when I came to you humbly, not with eloquent words, and just spoke a simple message about a cross, it came with the very power of God. And what's so interesting is that Paul is arguing that this message and the cross of Jesus comes with power. But at the point in which Jesus was crucified, the people did not think that the cross was powerful or a message of a cross could ever be anything of power. In fact, at the very moment that Jesus was crucified, what we see happening is his disciples scattering. Even his closest three friends within his group of disciples leave him and abandon him. He finds himself betrayed by one who should, should have loved him. He finds the religious leaders feeling like they've won a great victory. He finds himself completely and utterly alone. You see, in the moment of Jesus going to a cross, everything that he claimed, everything that he declared previously seemed completely incompatible with this moment. You see, he declared, I am the Savior. I am God. I'm the one who's come to rescue and redeem you. I am here to restore my people. I'm here to rescue my people and make the world the way it should be again. And they'd long anticipated the coming of their king. They'd long anticipated the coming of a Savior. And in their minds, the Savior would always be one of great power and strength and might fully on display. That he would vanquish his enemies and that he would rescue his people. And so when Jesus moved towards a cross and ended up on a cross, it was completely and utterly incompatible with what they believed they would experience when God presenced himself among them. We see this in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see that the, the Jewish people at the time just could not consider or even think that the cross would be something that their Messiah and their King would, would be on. And the reason for this is that the cross of anyone who was under Roman rule, the cross was nothing but a form of execution. But it wasn't just a form of execution. It was particularly designed to make sure that the person suffered while they died and experienced shame while they died. And so for the people around Jesus, as they saw his claims and then saw him go to a cross, they couldn't put those two things together. They couldn't figure out how these things worked together. Surely the cross is nothing more than a sign of weakness, judgment, and shame. You know, the cross was so gruesome that it was impolite to talk about it in polite company. I make this mistake often. I'm one of those people who can bring up a conversation at a dinner table. You can just see you've overstepped the line. When all the knives and forks go down, you can just see people have lost their appetite. But the cross was so gruesome, this was one of those moments. You just didn't talk about it. It wasn't spoken about. It was left for criminals. It was pushed to the side. And it was a thing of shame. And so the people of God and the religious leaders at the time had absolutely no category for being able to believe that their Messiah would end up on a cross. So their solution to this moment was to mock Jesus. Look at what Mark 15, 25 to 32 says. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. 
And with them they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, "Uh Uh-huh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one to another, saying, He saves others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You see the disconnect. For them, the cross is nothing but weakness and shame. That Jesus deserves nothing more than mockery. And in this moment, they mock him. Even those who were crucified alongside him say, yeah, we're being crucified as criminals. You're being crucified for some ridiculous claims. And they mock him. Their their big cry being, what king dies on a cross? What king is incapable of saving himself? You are weak and your claims are weaker. And this cross has exposed you. Is simply what their claim was. I think this is a fair response to Jesus. I think people do have this response to Jesus. They see a man hanging on a cross and they reject him and they reject all his claims. And I have, I have sympathy for that view. I could see how the, the shameful execution of a person claiming to be God, claiming to be God with us, would undermine those claims. What I struggle with is people who would say Jesus is a good teacher and that he's, he did good things. I struggle with that claim because it's, it's neither here nor there. The cross kind of forces us to decide, is he a madman? And many people land at the fact that he was just a phony and a fraud and the cross exposed him. But what if we were looking at this all wrong? What if the religious leaders of the time were looking at this all wrong? What if the disciples of God in that moment when Jesus was hanging on the cross were looking at it from the wrong perspective? You see, they were so limited to be able to look and see what was truly happening at the cross because they didn't allow themselves to ask a simple question. What if? What if everything that Jesus claimed was true? What if he really was the creator and the sustainer of the universe who had presenced himself among us? What if the cross was a part of his plan? But they were so set in their ways. They, they were so struggling with categories of being able to understand that the crucified king could be God that they didn't even allow themselves to ask the question, what if? And Easter Friday comes as a glorious moment in our calendar that causes us to reflect on the cross and, and gives us the opportunity to ask a simple question, what if? And for some of us who are looking in, we might be quite cynical or we might be undecided about who the person of Jesus is and you're here and you're looking in. And I would say just for a moment, just for this day, it affords us the opportunity. It affords you the opportunity to push aside any cynicism, to push aside any um, doubt that you may have about this person, Jesus, and just allow yourself to ask the question, what if it's true? What if that really is the creator of the universe hanging on a cross? What would that say about God? And what would that say about us? You see, in the Bible, through the Gospels, Jesus is often called meek. And meekness is not weakness when it comes to Jesus. Meekness is restrained power. 
Meekness is one who has access to power but restrains it for the good of others or uses it towards the good of others. What if in this moment, what if what the cross stands forth as is not a moment of weakness but it's a moment of meekness where Jesus restrains his strength from serving himself and chooses to use it towards serving others. What if that's what's going on in this moment? You see, as the people walked past Jesus, as they walked past him, they mocked him and they said, save yourself and come down from the cross. But in that moment, as Jesus is hanging there with his arms stretched out, struggling to breathe, as people walk past him and mock him and say, you don't have the power to save yourself. What if in that moment, what he was doing was not showing weakness, but restraining his strength from saving himself so that he could save others, to save the very ones who are walking past him and mocking him. What if the infinite strength of the creator and the sustainer of the universe in the moment of the cross was being orientated towards those who the Bible would say are enemies and rebels, who'd, who'd found themselves distant from God? What does that say about God if that is true? That all his strength was being orientated towards others. And in the same moment, if it's true, what does it say about us? If the cross is there and the creator of the universe is on the cross, we then have to reflect, is that really how far the distance between us and God really is? When we look to the ugliness of the cross, we have to ask ourselves the question is, is that really what was necessary to be able to restore relationship between us and God? And what does that say about how far we have fallen? You see, something we learn here about ourselves, if we objectively just look at the cross, is that we need rescue. Jesus would say that on the cross, he's standing there on our behalf to make a way for us to be restored to God. I know I would have been one of the ones that would have mocked Jesus and seen the cross as folly and missed what was going on because of this reality. Jesus, on the cross, was making a way for people who were far from him to experience reuniting to the Father. The Bible calls this distance between us and God's sin. And it's a really difficult concept to fully unpack in the short time that we have. And I know that some people hear that word and they struggle with it, but sin is simply the, the biblical word that captures everything that is wrong with this world. All the pain that people have caused us, all the pain that we've caused people, all the pain that we see around us, the fact that the world doesn't feel the way that it should. And we are experiencing that more than ever now. The world doesn't feel that it is the way that it should be. And the, the, the Bible would speak of this word sin, the distance that we've fallen away from God, the distance that stands between us and God, our inability to be in relationship with God because of our rebellion and our sin is all summed, sums up all of that reality and what is wrong in the world. And in this moment, what Jesus is doing is he is showing infinite strength and standing in that gap, standing there on our behalf. John 1, 29 says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See the incredible strength that Jesus is showing us. Jesus was the only worthy one. Jesus, was not, Jesus did not deserve the cross, but he was the only one worthy to stand in our place on the cross. 
Jesus was perfect in every way. He loved the Father perfectly. He served the Father perfectly. He loved people perfectly. There was no fault in him. He was God with us, perfect and holy. And for us to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God, we need holiness. And so the only one worthy to go to the cross and and uphold justice in that moment and make a way for us to experience homecoming to the Father was Jesus himself, the infinitely perfect one and the infinitely strong one. You see, the the cross stands there. And as we objectively look at it, what it says to us is you are not strong enough to close the gap. I'm not strong enough. Ian is not strong enough to close the gap, even for himself. But yet what we see in this moment is God himself on the cross, strong enough to stand in the gap, to take the full weight of not just me, but of many who would come to know him. And not only is he strong enough to stand in the gap for one person, he is strong enough to stand in the gap for many people. You see, at the cross, we see an unexpected strength. What at first glance looks like weakness and shame is actually God stepping into a gap that we would never be strong enough for and overturning what we could never overturn and making a way for us to be able to be reunited with the Father in relationship. It's incredible strength. And it's strength not orientated towards himself. It's strength orientated towards the flourishing of others, even those who would walk past him and mock him in his moment of his outstretched arms, which were a moment of invitation back into relationship. We still mocked him. And yet in strength, he kept himself on the cross for the good of others. And if Jesus is who he says he is, the cross is nothing less than an incredible display of cosmic strength, power, love, and meekness. And it changes the way for us as Christ followers that we would forever experience power and strength. Jesus was ushering in a completely new kingdom and a completely new way on the cross where anyone who is privileged to have power and strength and might would no longer use it to oppress, to abuse, or to orientate their power and their strength towards their own flourishing. It would forever be for Christ followers that any strength, power, might that we have would forever be orientated towards the flourishing of others as we look at Jesus on the cross. And then we look at the unexpected wisdom of the cross. You see, for some people, it's the the perceived weakness and shame of the cross that is the stumbling block. For other people, it's actually just this thing of wisdom. This just seems like foolishness. This just seems like folly. This seems like myths. This seems like silliness to speak of a crucified king, one who would die. Verse 23, Paul speaks of this. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see that for the Jewish people, the people of God, it was the cross and the shame of the cross and that, that was the stumbling block for them. But for Gentiles or the Greeks who held up wisdom highly, it just seemed like folly. It just seemed silly. But what Paul's doing in this text is he's trying to say, no, at the center of the cross is wisdom. At the center of this message is the cross. And at the center of the cross is the start of understanding what is truly wise. Which is why a bit later in this letter, Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
At the center of wisdom is a cross. At the center of the message of the Christian faith is a crucified king. And wisdom starts there. That's the argument of Paul. He's not saying that the only thing he'd ever talk about is, is Jesus. And there's so many theologies and things about Jesus to speak about. And if rugby was around in the time, I'm sure he would speak about that too. But he's saying, no, what is at the center of wisdom, what is at the center of the message of the Christian faith is a cross. Patrick Schreiner, a theologian, says this, a Bible without a cross is a Bible without a climax, a Bible without an ending, a Bible without a solution. The spiral of sin that began in Genesis 3 must be stopped. The death of Jesus terminates the downward spiral. So here we experience a tension. Some people would look at the cross and say, it's folly, it's a myth, it's silly, it's ridiculous to think of a crucified king. But Paul is arguing, no, at the center of the cross, in this message that you see as folly, as you see as silly, is true wisdom. It's the start of wisdom. Paul goes on to say, hey, at the, if you understand the cross and you understand the wisdom of the cross, it actually fundamentally changes the way you see all wisdom in this world. Verse 19 says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He goes on to say that the, the, the wisdom of the cross will even silence the most wise in the world. Verse 20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So what Paul is, what's going on here, there's this tension of Paul saying that this wisdom will fundamentally change the way we see all other wisdom in the world. And what he's not saying is that this is a check your brain at the door kind of faith where we don't need to just blind faith, just believe it, stop thinking about it. That's not at all what he's saying. In fact, the Bible has books written on wisdom and the prudence of seeking wisdom and how good it is to build wise lives and to build your life upon wisdom and that it causes flourishing and that we should seek it. The Bible has a lot of good things to say about wisdom. And I'm also not saying that Christians and Christ followers are the wisest people in the world. If you've ever spent any time with myself or any other Christian, you quickly learn that we're not the smartest, we're not the wisest people around. It's actually a story of grace. That's the whole point. It's not the wisest who encounter God always. No, there are far more people, there are people in every sector in society that are far wiser, better educated, more gifted. They're nice in many fields of politics and education and finance and health. And we as Christ followers would do well to learn from them and apply their wisdom. So what is Paul getting at? What is Paul trying to tell us about the cross and the wisdom of the cross? What he's trying to say is that you could seek all the wisdom in this world, apply all the wisdom in this world, and you would Maybe you get richer, maybe you get healthier, maybe you get smarter, maybe you get more interesting, maybe you'd be more informed, maybe you'd be able to create flourishing in other people's lives and in society through this wisdom. But his point is that you could gather it all together and it would still fall horribly short of the wisdom of the cross. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the cross, to save those who believe. You see what he said there? 
all the knowledge and wisdom of the world will fall short in being able to help you know God. I want to say that again. All the knowledge and wisdom in the world will fall short of helping you to know God. But the foolish message of the cross comes with a wisdom that can reveal the very creator of the universe to us. As I've said, there is financial wisdom. There is wisdom around work. There is wisdom around health. There is wisdom around what it means to lead your family well. All of these wisdoms should be sought, but they cannot go beyond this world and tell us of things beyond this world. They are wisdom for this world and for the things of this world. But they don't speak of a wisdom that is beyond this world. And the reality is, I think every single one of us know that this world is not all there is, that there must be more. There's this deep longing for the, the world beyond this world that I think inherently lives in all of us. And what Paul is saying is the wisdom of the cross is the only way that what is beyond this world is revealed. You see, we can't know God apart from him stepping into human history. He sits outside. He is other. He created. He sustains but he's not a distant and far off God. That's what the cross reveals to us. He is a God who 2,000 years ago stepped into human history in human form, humbled himself, and he walked a dusty road towards a cross so that we could know who he is and know what sort of God he is. He is a God and a king who would hang on a cross for people who didn't even want to know him or have a knowledge of him. God makes himself known to those who, wouldn't, who didn't even realize that they deeply desired to know him. You see, if God had not revealed himself, no wisdom on earth could have revealed him to us. And this wisdom of the cross points us to a person. It says that we can know Jesus. We can walk with him read about him, get to know him, pray to him, experience him, experience his presence by his spirit poured out. This wisdom invites us into a relationship with a living God who has revealed himself through his cross. This is a wisdom that speaks not just on the canvas of this world. It is a wisdom that speaks on the canvas of eternity, a wisdom that speaks on the canvas of complete and true reality. It speaks beyond this time. It speaks to what it means to know God, the creator himself. Paul goes on to say this in verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see that? Jesus himself is wisdom. And we encounter Jesus, we encounter wisdom. This is incredible news. You see, it's not the most learned, it's not the most educated it's not the smartest or the, the, most, the person with the highest IQ that gets to encounter and enjoy the great mysteries of God. No, it's those who have humbled themselves and have encountered Jesus himself, which means the most simple person in the world can be the most wise simply because they're walking in close and intimate relationship with Jesus. And the most wise and learned person, the most educated person can still have a deep longing in their heart and their soul for knowledge. They could gather together everything together and still feel that they don't know enough. They don't have enough wisdom. 
because they haven't encountered wisdom himself, Jesus. That's the message of the cross. That the most simple person who encounters Jesus can become the most wise amongst us. And then the unexpected boast of the cross. Let's read verse 26 together. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what do we have so far as we reflected on the unusual strength on the cross, the unexpected strength of the cross and the unexpected wisdom of the cross? Is that the, the cross reveals to us that God is infinitely strong and he orientated that strength towards rescuing people who did not deserve it, who were unworthy of it. It shows us that we are not the ultimately strong ones. We are not the ultimately wise ones. And we are not those who are ultimately in control. This message of a cross throughout time, throughout history, has had two effects on people when it's shared. Paul points to this in verse 18 when he says, yet again, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. You see, for some people, they hear this message of a cross and they go, this is folly. This is ridiculous. I, I do believe that I have the strength in and of myself. I do believe that I have the wisdom and the knowledge and the ability to make sense of life and to live life in independence from God. And they reject God and the, the thought of being apart from God is fine. And then you have people on this side who hear the message and they go, wow, I, I've come face to face with the reality that I am weaker than I thought. I'm not as knowledgeable or as wise as I thought. I'm not as in control as I thought I was. And the, the message of the cross stands out as great hope as they encounter one who is ultimately strong, ultimately wise, and ultimately in control. And we find those hearts soften and they give themselves over to God. And they build their lives and orientate their lives around his wisdom and his strength. But what I found is in these two responses, there are some times in our lives which stand out more than other times in our lives that reveal to us that maybe we're not as strong and wise as we think we are. I've recently had one of those moments in my life where I've shared this with some of the congregations, but most of you would not know this about me that in October 2019, my dad had a stroke. And then two weeks later, my brother, 33-year-old brother, died tragically in an accident. And then on Christmas Day, my dad had another stroke. I'm really grateful that my dad has recovered from both those things pretty much fully. And we're reeling as a family, and I'm reeling as an individual as I try to process and make sense of what it means to have lost my brother. 
And I share this story also to say in a time of Corona, I know that we're going through stuff and people are going through stuff and I don't see the message of the cross as something trite and simple and simplistic and folly and foolishness. No, it has stood out as something strong and anchoring and securing as I've reflected on a, a God who knows what it is to suffer, a God who knows what it is to have strength and courage, a God who, who offers that to me. I've encountered a God who is loving and kind and merciful, who comforts, who brings rest in nights where I feel restless as I grapple with the reality of 2019. And those are moments that so many of us experience, where individuals experience, where we are humbled and we see very clearly that we're not the ones in control. We're not the ones with wisdom. We're not the ones with strength. And there's this wonderful invitation from the cross to step into the strength of the ultimately strong one, to, to go and seek the wisdom of the ultimately wise one when we don't have the answers and to hand over control to the one who has showed that he is loving and kind and gentle. And then there are times, and these are very few times, where, where the entire world experiences a shaking, where the things that are strong in the world, the things that are wise in the world are all shaken at the same time. I've never experienced a time in my lifetime but we as a world are going through one of those moments. And what I found in these moments, whether you're experiencing a personal humbling or a worldwide humbling, is that it softens hearts to the message of the cross. And there is this invitation to us this morning to relinquish control, to, rel to admit our lack of strength and to admit that even if we could pull together all the wisest people that it all falls short and that we are a needy people who desperately need God. At the end of 2019 and going into 2020, I didn't think it could get any more strange or difficult and it did. And I found myself saying, I have very little to boast in. I have very little strength inside myself. I feel burdened beyond my strength. And I think in the coming time, there will be people who feel burdened beyond their strength. There'll be times where we feel like we don't have much to boast in as everything around us is shaken and exposed as not being ultimately strong or ultimately wise. But what Paul says here, verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I've learned that my boast in Jesus, my boast in the victory and the unexpected realities of the cross is a boast that, go, that lasts through shaky times. It is a boast that causes courage to rise up in my heart. It is a boast that makes me feel strength when I don't have strength. And I boast in the death of Jesus and his victory on the cross. It speaks to my soul and it causes courage to rise up. It causes worship to rise up as I'm lifted out of the wisdom of this world as I'm lifted out of the strongest things of this world into a cosmic reality and reality that I have a hope in the cross that speaks to this life, but it also speaks to the life to come. And I can rest in that and we can rest in that. Christian, we always have a reason to boast. We always have a reason to worship. And Easter Friday comes as a reminder of that as we look to the unexpected victory of Jesus.
what we're going to do now is we're going to go into a time of communion. But just before we do, I want to speak to those of us who might be dialing in and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christ follower. What Easter comes to you is a wonderful invitation to ask the question, what if this is true? What if, the, what if there is a distance between me and God? And instead of God just walking away from me, he stepped into human history, went towards the cross, bled and died on that cross, and in great strength stood in the gap that, that exists between me and God and has made a way for me to live and encounter God. And the wonderful implications of that is that I don't have to be strong anymore. I don't have to be the ultimately wise one anymore. I don't have to be the one scrambling for control anymore. But I can find a deep rest in this God. And I would invite you to consider that. I would invite you to think about that as we go into this time of communion. And for those of us who are Christ followers, as we go into this time of communion, I want you to consider what it means that we always have a boast in the cross. So what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask you to take the juice or whatever you have for communion and the bread or whatever you have to represent it. I'm just going to walk us through a little moment. What I want to say to you is that all this message means is that it is okay for us to feel weak. What these represent to us is it's okay to feel weak. It is okay to feel burdened beyond your strength. It is okay to feel that things are out of control. But for those of us who believe what these elements represent it is not okay for us to stay there you see the christ follower we are liberated to boast in our weakness but the reason we are liberated to boast in our weakness is because we have a faithful expectation that in our weakness god will display his power and strength and so this is a reminder of moments of great weakness that seem to be great weakness to understand that in moments of great weakness like the cross, it is an opportunity for God to display his great power. Our body, Jesus' body broken, was broken in meekness, not weakness. And laying down a divine strength so that those who are weak could be made strong. The blood of Jesus was spilt in kind wisdom, not cruel foolishness. God in his wisdom displays his loving kindness and mercy towards those who once acted foolishness by spilling his blood. I'm going to ask that as you take these elements, what we're going to do is we're going to go to a song and that you would time, take time to reflect on what this means. And as you do, I pray that you encounter Jesus himself, that you would experience his spirit poured out in this moment, and that you would feel his strength, his wisdom, and his courage rising up in you now. Let me pray for us before we do that. Father, we need you. We are experiencing an unprecedented, unusual shaking. And as we reflect on your cross this morning, as we reflect on this Easter Friday, the death of Jesus, 
I pray, God, that you would, by your, your very presence, power, and spirit, help us to be those who see its victory. Help us to be those who see its wisdom. Help us to be those who see its strength. And I pray, God, that that would become something that anchors us in this time. Something that causes us to still have a boast. Something that causes us to still have a reason to sing and celebrate. Even if our singing and celebration is subdued in the pain of this time, let us be those who still boast in Jesus. Boast in you, God. Would we be a boasting, humble people? God, would you do what you need to do in this moment?